Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 59, Turning a Passion into a Tool for Change, with wildlife artist Sophie Green. Welcome, everyone. As always, this podcast has been brought to you by listeners, patrons, and friends. This includes people like Donna Stewart, who has come on board as new patron. You can find her on Instagram at donnastewart.art. I'll include the link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Donna, for supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find out how at patreon.com slash drawinginspirationpodcast. There's also a link directly from drawinginspiration.fm. So I hope you're doing well and enjoying the summer so far. It's been uh, quite hot here in Ottawa, Canada, and this upcoming week is looking like much of the same. So um, yeah, summer is, is fully here, and I'll have to be honest, I'm looking forward to fall. I do enjoy the warm weather, but my favorite time of year is fall. It's not too far now, so I'm sorry to say that for those of you who are enjoying this summer. So I will uh, cover a couple of things, and then we'll jump right into this uh, wonderful interview. So I've been talking about this place called the Boneyard, which is basically an old car yard. It's located in Cardinal, Ontario. Uh, They are open to visitors, but it's by appointment only, and then you're asked to make a donation to a local food bank. So I was able to finally make it. I took a day off work uh, through my day job, (laughs) and I went down with my uh, iPhone and all my drawing equipment and decided I'd spend at least half the day uh, walking around this yard and seeing what I could find. So what really drew me to this is there's such a diversity of vehicles, uh, you know, from the 1920s and 30s all the way up to current day, and they're strewn kind of across multiple acres. And some of them are accessible, recent, and others are kind of overgrown with weeds and trees and things like that. And I just, it was incredible. It was so cool to be able to just, I was i was by myself for majority of the time and just walking past these vehicles and looking at them and, and thinking about, you know, all the the impact that vehicle had on so many people and all the stories it could tell. Um, uh, the families it supported, the people it supported, all the things that may have happened around it. And uh, just thinking about that when looking at these vehicles that are sitting there with windows smashed and, and you could see they were possibly in an accident and all the rust and decay and just knowing that for at some point this was a really important item to certain people. And uh, that was just, it was really cool to be kind of pulled into that it was quiet. There was wind blowing in the trees. It was just, I, I really enjoyed that experience. I am going to go back for sure. But um, what I did is I walked around the lot. I took a bunch of photos with my phone. And then I went back to a special vehicle uh, known as Louise. And I just thought I'd tell the story about this Louise vehicle. So Louise is a 1936 Dodge. And she is supposedly possessed. So. <laughs> Um, the owner was telling me that when they brought the vehicle to the lot, which was about three years ago, so she's a fairly uh, new entrant to this facility, he and his, his son got into this car and kind of played with the steering wheel and just imagined what it was like to be in this, in this car in its heyday. And the following morning, he had a stroke. Healthy man, no issues in the past, he wakes up and has a stroke. His son was feeling awful for the next few days. Just just under the weather, could not explain it, just feeling just awful. Uh, 
And when they reached out to talk with the tow truck driver that dropped off the vehicle, he was saying, I don't know what it was, man, but I was really, really sick um, after I dropped that car off. And, uh, you know, I just I, I couldn't recover. I was feeling just unwell. And then his son had a friend, and I guess they were, you know, the vehicle was parked on the way out of the lot, and his friend was like, ha Louise, you know, whatever. And uh, he dragged his fingers across the car as they drove past it. And that evening, and that evening, he ended up cutting the tip of his finger off. So, <laughs> there's some really weird stories around this vehicle. So, did I touch Louise? I did not. I don't believe in this stuff, but I did not. I um, So I sat in front of her, and I sketched, and I painted Louise. I will include a link to that in the show notes. And it was really kind of weird. Um, I spoke to Louise and asked for permission to paint her and talked about things a little bit, uh, sometimes out loud, sometimes in my head. And uh, I'm fine. <laughs> I've had nothing happen to me. And so I think I, I just, it was, a, it was a great experience. I was only there till about noon. I got there quite early in the morning. I'm going to be doing some more vehicles uh, based on some of the photos I took. So keep an eye out for that on my Instagram. So they're closed now until October, and then they reopen again. I think I'm going to go back in October when, you know, the leaves start to turn. I think going back there and maybe doing some, um, taking some additional photos, but also just doing some stuff on site. I'm going to do another vehicle or two when I'm there. So I think that's going to be fun. And I may go again in the spring because, you know, the challenge with this time of year is all the weeds and all the grass gets quite high. So I think for some of the vehicles, it'd be good to have that lower, um, lower down so I can get some better views. And so uh, I think I may have revisited in the spring, but it's a, like, it's only about 40, 45 minutes from where I am. A wonderful day trip just to get out and, and draw and paint. So Joe, who's the owner of the property, was very welcoming and supportive and uh, it was great. I, I really enjoyed myself. So if you're in my area of the woods, I would recommend checking them out and, you know, reach out to them first because uh, they are closed right now and it's kind of like by appointment only. They're pretty flexible, but they want to know who's coming and who's wandering around there a lot. So um, reach out to them and uh, it's it was fun. It was a great time. So I did another addition to my nature journal, which is uh, an A5 uh, sketchbook from Etcher. And so I added monarchs. Uh, so I did a piece that has the monarch butterfly in various stages as a caterpillar. I feel like I should have added an egg. So I think I'm going to do another monarch page where I focus on the egg, the emergence of the caterpillar, and then the various instars, which are the stages of growth and then the J that it forms, and then it becomes a chrysalis. So I'm going to do a little bit more, I think, another page on that, because I really wanted to do a monarch butterfly and then put some of these other elements around it. I'm really happy how it turned out. I've gotten so much positive feedback. I've had a few uh, scientists reach out and uh, talk to me about this and pursuing other kind of uh, options with some of the work I've done. So I'm really happy with this. I'm really happy with the way the Nature Journal is coming along. Monarchs are very special for us because we've raised them for about 10 years. And so we've released hundreds of monarchs and it's very special to the family. It was something we started with the kids when they were quite young. And then my daughter took it over. Uh, we didn't do it this year because of uh, COVID and travel and everything else. We just couldn't commit to it. But we've uh, 
kind of focused on areas of the yard and making sure that there's milkweed. So please plant milkweed. That's what monarchs need the most. It's weird because milkweed, people are concerned about it taking over. It doesn't really do that. Like we have areas that were filled with milkweed and now there's very little. So this fall, we're actually going to, we always throw seed out, but this year we're going to do a concerted effort to get all those out into new areas and make sure that we propagate the milkweed and provide that environment for the butterflies. We always have lots of flowers and trying to encourage them as they are important pollinators. But um, yeah, monarchs are really special to us. I mean, all butterflies are, but especially the monarch. And so I was really happy to do this uh, page in my nature journal. So the next piece that I'm going to do is dragonflies. And I started that at a, uh, a park with some other artists. We were socially distanced, but I laid out some sketches and I started my first piece. So I'm going to include various dragonflies on the same page at various stages. So I'm just going to throw a bunch of dragonfly stuff <laughs> on the same page. And that's going to be my next piece. So if you want to follow along with that, check out my Instagram. I'll be posting um, some updates and some stories based on that. I hope to have it done in the next week or so as of this recording. And the last little bit is I'm producing some merch. So I'm going to be focused, I think, initially on some t-shirts and hoodies and not so much around the podcast, but around my art. I am going to do some special stuff around the podcast, but that's going to be coming much later. But I found a company that's able to do this kind of printing on demand. So uh, keep an eye out for that. I'm trying to make this fun and exciting. And to the point I'm thinking about, um, how cool would it be to have a bunch of butterflies on some leggings? Now, I probably will not try leggings on myself. <laughs> But I will, I think, uh, look at some patterns that I can kind of pull together and throw all of that onto some leggings. And I think that would be kind of fun. And so, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that. I will talk about it on the podcast. And if you want to learn more about my trip to the Boneyard and some of the other stuff I've been working on, check out my newsletter. Uh, links are available through mykenley.com as well as the uh, podcast website. And I will be releasing a new newsletter in the coming week. So uh, check that out. And that's it for updates. So uh, let's dive right into this interview. My guest this week will take your breath away with her wonderful paintings of wild animals from all over the world. Her ability to render the skin of an elephant, the wool of a bison, and the feather of a penguin is incredible. We explore her journey from teacher to artist and why every piece of art she sells supports charities focused on animals and their environment. To talk about her creative journey and her art, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Sophie Green. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Hi. Oh, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for joining me. Um, it's interesting challenge for us to meet at the same uh, at the same time with such a difference in time zones, but I, I do appreciate you uh, doing this. This is great. Well, I appreciate you waking up at the uh, crack of dawn to talk to me. <laughs> it's very early for you. <laughs> Well, I mean, anybody, I, I, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. As soon as I saw your art and all the animals you've uh, you've painted, I was like, I have to talk to Sophie at some point because um, anyone who knows me knows I love drawing animals and, and the textures. And as soon as I saw your work, it's like, if I could talk to Sophie, I would. Um, and I thank you so much for, for saying yes to that. So I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. Oh, that's, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah. I love, I love hearing about people's sort of take on my own artwork as well and how other people perceive it i mean there's there's a lot of great artists uh, choosing different subjects like people and, and landscapes i i prefer animals and I'm, I'm just glad to speak to someone else who does as well at least at this <laughs> stage in your career so 
Brilliant. So <laughs> with respect to your career, is this something, would you say that you've always been a creative like growing up as a kid, I mean, we all draw because it's something that we can do that doesn't get us into trouble. But <laughs> did you did you feel you were creative as a as a child? I don't honestly don't think I felt particularly creative. I mean, I definitely remember being given sort of like paper and pencils, almost just to sort of like shut me up, keep me in a corner, <laughs> keep me busy. Um, but I don't think I was particularly creative in the sense of experimenting and trying different things. I think I was more interested in sort of like the technical side of it which is probably why my artwork now is quite uh, technical based and realistic rather than sort of abstract or impressionist style art but yeah I've always kind of said quite openly that I personally don't find creativity very easy to come by in personally for myself but yeah the technical side of it I enjoy so I guess I could could be seen as more sort of like scientific minded um, I'm not sure which one's left brain and which one's right brain, but don't they say that you're one of them? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, the kind of work that you're doing is realism, just in case the person listening hasn't seen your work. I'll provide links to all of that, obviously, like I always do. But you you didn't take a normal path. And that's what I find exciting about your work is you didn't get a BFA and so on and so forth. You took a different path. And, and so what was that path? How did you get to where you are with regard to kind of education and uh and your first job? Well, I, I came out of um, college in England, which is from the age of 16 to 18. And um, everybody else went to university, went off and studied whatever they were interested in. And I actually applied to go to university to study film studies and French for some reason, just those combined subjects. Um, just because I was interested in it, I spoke French and I also was interested in film. And I found those subjects easy when I studied them. And I got accepted into a, a few really good universities. And then I sort of thought to myself, why, why am I going to university to study these things? What do I want to do for a living? I don't think I even knew at that point what, what I wanted to do. So I just cancelled my applications to the universities and uh, managed to get a job in the film industry as a stand-in and a body double for actresses oh really yeah yeah so I worked in the film industry in the end for a number of years uh, and I still do from time to time I've still got like my agent and occasionally if I've got time or I'm bored or particularly during lockdown um, I did a few jobs just to get out of the house (laughs) to be honest and yeah so I worked in the film industry for a while and then in my sort of mid-20s I think it was I I think I felt like I needed to go and get like a real job in inverted commas because um, mm-hmm. the film industry is amazing and if I think if you have a specific skill like you're a cameraman or I don't know you work in post it's a career but for me being a stand-in and body double and doing it all through agencies it was very temperamental and it was unreliable and I think I felt like I just needed to go and get a grown-up job so I became a primary school teacher and I went to university and studied for three years um, to get QTS which is qualified teacher status and uh, yeah I became a primary school teacher and I think I became a teacher just because I love working with kids and educating and it's what my mum did and it felt like the right move Um, and yeah, became a teacher and realized quite quickly that it wasn't what I 
thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> working with kids and, you know, educating is probably one, one strand of that job. Um, and the rest of it is all very, very hard work. Um, you don't really get much, you know, you don't really get much control or creativity in terms of what and how you teach. It's all very managed by the government in the UK. And so, yeah, I think also becoming a primary school teacher, I realised as I had less and less time for myself, I was kind of giving up on the art, which is something that I'd done alongside all my other jobs since I was a kid, just as a hobby. And yeah, as soon as I lost that time and that um, energy to be able to create art, I realised how important the art was to me. And it was then that I kind of decided I wanted to go for it and try doing it for a career. So did you ramp up or did you just stop and then begin as a full-time artist? Or not, I shouldn't say a full-time artist because I was corrected on this. I had said, I'm a part-time artist and somebody corrected me <laughs> and you know, made it clear that if you're an artist, you're an artist. That's it. Right. So maybe I should ask my question differently. <laughs> When did you, did you move into that as your next career, like immediately? Like you said, you were doing it throughout, but at what point did you say, this is, this is what I'm doing full-time? Yeah, so I, I was doing art on the side of all these other jobs, and then when I became a teacher, I kind of stopped. And at this point, I was, I was in my sort of like mid to late 20s, so I, I had already moved out of my family home years and years before, and I had bills to pay and rent and a car to run and all these responsibilities so for me it wasn't really a case of just quitting my job um, and my stable job as a teacher and hoping that I would make enough money to become a quote-unquote full-time artist um <laughs> I yeah I had to kind of slowly reduce my hours so I from being a full-time primary school teacher I became a self-employed um like supply teacher and private tutor and then from there, I was able to cut my hours down and, until eventually the art sort of took over. But I did find that I had to do probably, it was probably in terms of hours, maybe like a full-time job and a half or maybe even two full-time jobs because I had to work so hard to be able to uh, get my artwork out there and produce enough artwork to be able to take that over as my full-time income, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. it was it was hard hard work. I know a lot of people do just decide to go for it and they quit their jobs and they become an artist for a living. Um, but yeah, for me it wasn't it wasn't doable at that time. Yeah, I think yours is probably the wiser approach. Um, <laughs> putting the <laughs> putting the pressure and and the thing is, I think you know so many artists don't have the business acumen or experience, uh, which is right. A huge part of this maybe we could talk about that a little bit later but um it's not just creating right no in fact i would say that for me just for me personally it's probably like 30 percent creating and art and 70 percent business it's it's crazy i was um just personally i was working on a previous podcast i was working on a newsletter and up until yesterday i had drawn for about four days and i felt like an imposter just because <laughs> Um, you know, once again, this is this is something I do in my spare time, but um, I feel like I'm almost at that point. You know, I'm, I'm much, many years later, but I'm at the same point you were with the teacher um, in transitioning. Amazing. So, so you've done it the same the same way that I did. Kind of, you've just slowly started to let your art take over. 
Yeah, and I don't, for me, it's more of a retirement plan as much, you know, if something happens tomorrow, I'm going to embrace what, what hits me, but um, I didn't start art till I was in my 40s. I'm glad to hear your story because I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have an excellent uh, art degree and training, but for somebody who's done it their whole life um, off the corner of the desk and then is able to transition to it being their full-time job, I think that's that's incredible. Um, oh, yeah. Thank you. I think that if you've got the drive and the ambition, then you'll be great. And I know everybody is different, and I know some people that have gone to art school or art college and and then are now sort of like working in shops or not doing anything to do with art. And I know people that went to art school and art college and are now very successful artists. And I know people that quit their job and decided to go for it. It, I just think it depends on how you as a person work best. And for me personally, I work best if I've got sort of like a business model and a plan and everything's mapped out for me and then I can take the steps to make it happen rather than just quitting my job and seeing what happens and hoping for the best. Do you have a piece of work that you did that you would consider the first one you did as a, an artist, a full-time professional paid artist? Do you have a piece that you have in mind that you think that was the, that was the piece, that was the, the one that brought me into this new era? Mm, that's a good question. It's actually something I do get asked quite a lot, is which piece for me sort of swung it. And honestly, because it was so gradual and a lot of my pieces in the beginning were commissions. And to be honest, they were mostly like pet portraits and stuff like that. Just like small pet portraits on paper. Um, Now I don't do pet portraits anymore. I specifically just do wildlife. I I do commissions, but I have quite a long waiting list. So I kind of pick up from it when I can. And most of my pieces are huge now. Um, compared but yeah there was just so many pet portraits over the years that it, they all just kind of blended into one and I guess I absolutely love doing pet portraits um, and I love being able to have that positive impact on someone else's life because you know you're painting a part of their family really because pets are a part of the family mm-hmm. but if you don't know the animal personally or the species isn't you know endangered or something for me there wasn't much passion there um behind what I was doing so I would say there was probably my biggest piece to date which I did a couple of years ago a few years ago maybe um was this big elephant portrait uh called Hannibal and it was 40 by 60 inches um so it was really large and that was probably one of the first commissions that I've done which was in the area that I really wanted to be in which is like large-scale wildlife portraits and yeah I think I gained a lot of momentum off the back of that specifically because it was eye-catching it was big it was wildlife which is what I wanted to be doing I took loads of photos loads of videos um so I think that was probably one of the pieces that propelled me I would say how long did it take you to do something that large I know you don't, maybe you don't track your time, but. No, I don't. I tried to track my time. I actually downloaded an app um, a while ago where you can stop it and start it whenever you're doing something specific. And then it will add up all of the the minutes and the hours that you've taken. But I just kept forgetting to start it <laughs> or I would forget <laughs> to stop it. And I would start it and do some painting 
and then I would go and have dinner I'd watch something on Netflix and then I would suddenly be like oh I forgot to stop the timer (laughs) so I just gave up on trying to track the hours and people ask me all the time Hannibal actually took me a few months a because I'd never done something so big and it just took me longer than it probably would normally anyway and B I ended up having to have a surgery in the middle of it which put me out of action for a few weeks because I couldn't really like move my arm around and it was such a big painting I had to kind of reach up with my arm to paint it so it took a few months in the end um but then it went out to its its new home in America and I was happy it's a it's a beautiful piece I'm always uh, an elephant is something that I'm excited about doing at some point but I'm not ready for the texture yet yeah it's elephants are great fun and almost quite therapeutic to paint and I think with the texture I personally find elephant skin easier than say fur so mm-hmm. you might be pleasantly surprised at how you find doing it. I, I'm gonna have to give it a try because I, I now that you say that like I did a snapping turtle which the, the listener can't see but you can see behind me. Um, yeah, great. I really loved the skin and the texture of that. I do find like drawing a moth or a butterfly which has really fine hair on it um, quite a bit more of a pain to draw. But I'm wondering yeah. <laughs> with Hannibal, when you look at it now, what on that piece are you most proud of? I mean, I do get complimented a lot on the texture of the elephant skin for that piece. It is a very detailed piece. But again, I look... Oh. I don't think I've painted anything where I look back a couple of years later and I think, yeah, it's still perfect because I'm always progressing and improving. So now I look back on that piece and I think, oh, I would have done that differently or I would have wouldn't have done that like that. And I could have gotten that bit better. I think, yeah, I'm definitely one of my harshest critics, um, but I could say that about any piece, to be honest. (laughs) But you still probably see stuff in it, you know, like the eye or... um you know, the tusk or whatever the case where you think, you know what, I nailed that part, right? There's, there's... <laughs> to be honest, no, honestly. Like, really? Even, like, okay. Yeah, like the the tusk is nice, but if I compare, for example, the tusk that I did on Hannibal to the horn that I did on the bison revival, again, it's the difference. There's so much more depth. It's just so much better on the bison. And so... Yeah, I, I, and even when I look at the bison, I think, oh, I could have done that differently or that could have been improved. So I think you just always improve and you will look back on your work and think, mm, I could have done that better or that better. Yeah, perfection is really the enemy of the artist, right? Like, do, yeah. do you, and, and we'll get into your, some of your tools and technique, but I, maybe this is a good time to ask you, um, when's a piece finished for you? Um, I don't think it ever is, but I give myself a deadline so that I kind of force myself to have one because otherwise I'll just go over and over the same thing or I'll try and change things and I'll end up ruining it. (laughs) Yeah, I could work on a piece forever and it's still not be perfect in my opinion. But if I give myself a deadline, then as soon as I know that I'm kind of approaching the deadline, I start to wrap it up anyway, but both physically wrap it up and also mentally, I think, in my head, wrap my head around the fact that it's almost finished and then I can start to wind down from the painting, I think. I've, I've asked a few artists the same question, and I, I really struggle sometimes with that. And for me, I've embraced this idea that, you know, the difference between kind of finished and complete, right? Like, right. at this point in time, this is as best as I'm going to do. I've given it all. 
but I'll look back on it and think it, it's unfinished. But it may be, you know, complete at that point in time. So there is that struggle. But I think that's how we become better artists, right? Is to be critical of our work in a way that's positive, which is hard. It's hard to look back at your yeah. pieces and think, why was I calling myself an artist? I'm not saying you do this, but I do this. <laughs> Where you look back and thinking, I'm not an artist. Look, look, I could have done this better. I could have done that better. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've always felt like that and I probably will for a while. There's certainly an element of sort of imposter syndrome, I think, that comes with being an artist or anything creative because it's so subjective and so really it's up to you to decide whether you call yourself an artist or not and then alongside that decision will come a niggling doubt in your mind that will sort of say oh, are you though and I remember for years I while I was sort of doing the art and trying to make the art happen but also still working sort of part-time at the school I would go out and meet people and be like oh I'm a teacher and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself an artist and occasionally I would have someone call me up on it and be like no she's not she's an artist she's an amazing artist and and would like get out some of my work and show them um that they would not me obviously and for me I just felt almost embarrassed because I'm like oh it's not quite good enough to show people and yeah I think I think that's perfectly normal but I do think that that's something that you need to get over in order to progress because otherwise you have that imposter syndrome and that self-doubt that's probably subconsciously on some level going to hold you back anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a whole accountability in being an artist and transitioning to becoming an artist. Um, you know, even when it comes to your little Twitter bio or your Instagram bio, moving the word artist to the front <laughs> mm. <Yeah. laughs> is, is a bit of yeah. a, keeps you accountable, I think, to yourself, right? Yeah, and, and having some people have like award winning artists, and like I don't think I have, I'm trying to wrap my brains now, I'm probably going to put my foot in my mouth, but I don't think I've got that on there. But award winning is, is just a fact. You either have a, you've either won awards or you haven't, but having award winning artists sounds like you're almost bragging about it. But you know, it's something to, it's something to be proud of. And mm -hmm. if someone sees award winning, then they think, oh, they're good um but yeah it's just it's a thing that you people have to kind of get over i think right uh, now before we get into the tools i just want to ask you do you have you know i've spoken to some people because i do realism as well and a lot of people look at that and saying you think it's not creative right when you're doing realism have you struggled with that in, in in people saying that about your work or having that kind of commentary or you've been isolated from that i mean i personally haven't had I don't think anyone say that to me, uh, touch wood, but I have seen that with other artists, other realism artists that I admire. I've seen sort of like on their social media posts and stuff, people saying like, what's the point? You know, what's the point in this? You can just have a photo. Um, right. And I think there, there, there definitely is an element of that, especially with sort of hyper photo realism, where it does look exactly like a photo. And I think if you're, copying a photo exactly as it is then I don't know perhaps perhaps there's not as much creativity in that if you see a photo that someone else has taken and you just copy it and think this will be a good painting and then you recreate that maybe not as much creativity has sort of gone into that but I think what happens often with realism painters is they come up with a concept 
um, in their minds. And then they will use a photo or photos to create something themselves, which is where the creativity comes in. And mm. then they recreate that. So for me, for example, sometimes if I see a photo and it's amazing and I want to sort of like copy a part of it, then I will. But for the most part, my paintings are usually created out of one or more photos put together in a sort of Photoshop and Lightroom um, to create an idea that I've already come up with in my head, maybe like weeks or months before. And then, yeah, that, for me, that's where the creativity comes from. Yeah, and I, I, you're on here because I admire you as a creative. And, you oh, know, when I you. see your work with um, the drafts and uh, what really struck me most because I love them is the whale shark. Ah, oh, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's had a lot of positive, positive feedback. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's a stunning version of a whale shark. I just, I love that piece. Um, I, it just, it just blew me away when I saw that, um, you know, beyond the march, and we'll talk about the march maybe later, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Another yeah. favorite, I think. Yeah, the, the whale shark is, uh, is brilliant. So, you're a painter. You don't draw very much, correct? Not very much anymore, no. I've kind okay. of moved away from that, although that's how I started out. I started off by drawing, and I do think that that's a good place to start as well because it kind of makes you a better painter, I think, just learning the techniques of drawing and right. composition and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, now I paint. Yeah, and I, it helps with observation too. I think, you know, just being able to look, uh, which is what artists need to do yeah, <laughs> a lot exactly. of. And yeah. so what, so you do you do your work in acrylic. What brought you to acrylic versus oil? Uh, do you know what? It's just a personal preference. I mean, I've used both. Because of the style and technique that I personally use, I sort of layer up quite quickly. And oil paints were just driving me insane. I couldn't stand the smell. I couldn't stand how slowly they were drying. Great for sort of more of a blended style, I think. And I would use oils more for like painting, maybe like still life or like fruit or something like that. And or again, like more of a um, contemporary style. I think oils are amazing. A lot of wildlife artists, though, do use oil. Uh, but for me, acrylic is just easier to use. And it's something that probably because of the ease of it, sort of the ease of um, applying, not having to dilute with a medium, and also the ease of cleaning up afterwards is something that I've just used more of. And so inevitably, I've become better at using acrylics and there's some really really high quality acrylics out there i think acrylics have kind of got maybe not as good a reputation as oils because in previous years they weren't as high quality and the pigments weren't as good and strong um but now i use a, a brand called golden uh, among others and the pigments are amazing and yeah really high quality archival quality paints awesome and when it comes to brushes, like, do you have a certain two or three brushes that you like to go with beyond the, the probably the real detailed one or two that you have? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have loads of brushes. Yeah, I have a whole, a whole box of brushes, but I tend to steer more towards the stiff synthetic round brushes, size sort of like zero to two, just to get that really fine detail, especially when I'm painting fur elephant skin and rhino skin and stuff like that probably more 
flat brushes, I would say, but it, it, it's rare that I do an elephant or a rhino. So, yeah, the, the round, thin, synthetic brushes are my go-to. <laughs> Can I ask you a technical question? I'm just thinking of, of elephant skin. Um, having done it with graphite or having done something similar with graphite um, and colored pencil, just from a technique perspective, are you looking at the, like, do, do you add, because it's like, if you didn't color, colored pencil, you're looking at the lights and moving to the darks. If you're doing it with acrylic, are you looking at the the peaks of the skin and then adding the valleys or h- how do you approach when you, when you do elephant skin? Yeah. So it's actually the opposite. Um, not just with elephant skin, but with anything, uh, with paint, with acrylic, sorry, I should say, um, and oil is you're starting with the darks. The Basically, you're, you're starting further back and you're working your way forward. So when okay. you're looking at, uh, I don't know, something that you want to paint or a photo or something, you're looking past what you can initially see all the way back. So if you want to paint, for example, uh, a penguin, you would initially think, oh, it's a white it's white feathers but then when you look back if you go back further behind those white feathers are sort of like this darker skin so you would start with the dark and and move forward into the light with an elephant's skin texture for example if you've got the trunk and it's got wrinkles Mm -hmm. i would go over the the what you you called them valleys didn't you the dark darker valleys of the trunk Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would add in what's a little bit further forward and then a little bit further forward to that until you, you've got what's closest to you and in the light, which is the, the lighter. So you would go with a, a dark value that is, is in the valley everywhere and then start bringing up almost like you're slicing exactly. it forward. Yeah. So for example, with a tiger, my, my initial, my first color is actually like a very dark brown, like a dark, like a burnt sienna or something mixed with a bit of black because the the shadows that the hair or the fur is casting on the back on the skin it looks dark brown and then I would come forward with uh, maybe a slightly more orangey tone and then the hairs would get light lighter and lighter until they're they're sort of a very light pale orangey color or sienna and then hairs that catch the sun will appear to be white so some of them will be a bit, bit whiter. Interesting. I, I'm, I may be in the art store later this afternoon buying acrylics. <laughs> oh, great. Spread the word. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do want to get a bit more painterly than just using uh, Procreate on my iPad. So, um, mm. Well, I mean, uh, that's probably great practice anyway, using Procreate. Um, well, it's... But what, oh, I was going to say what I would add to that, though, is that acrylics are great as well if you're just sort of starting out with paint because you make a mistake you just go over it they dry within seconds so it's perfect whereas personally with oil i find that if you make a mistake it can be a bit more stressful yeah i've uh, i still would like to try oils at some point i've been really into watercolor lately i've it's taken me i think six goes at it before i finally have given way to watercolor you know it's almost like it's almost like working with a cat a little bit because it just has its it's it's independent of you once it hits the right. paper yeah, you have to be really careful where you're, where you're kind of wetting the paper for the, for watercolors. And again, watercolor is the opposite, so it's sort of uh, right. light to dark. Um, oil as well. Be careful with your fat to lean 
ratio when you're layering it up. I don't know if you know much about that. Starting off with the lean and getting fatter as you go up. Okay. Yeah, I haven't done... I did oils once like 20 years ago, so... And I gave up on it. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> I think I got two hours into a painting and I was like, that's it. Yeah, I think oil, once you've mastered it, is great. But yeah, not for everybody. So how do you deal with composition? I mean, you said you use Lightroom and Photoshop. Is that, you know, you you pull, you take that idea that you have in your head, you find the, uh, so you find reference photos, you've got relationships with photographers and I've, I've seen you talk about this in FAQ, and I absolutely commend you in, in talking about it uh, because so many people go to Pinterest, they pull something from there, they draw it, they sell it. That doesn't help us as creatives. And so no. can you talk about your relationship with photographers and the importance and what you do with regard to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it is important because photographers are creatives too, as you said, and I have friends that are photographers I actually enjoy photography myself as well so I think it would kind of I would feel a little bit miffed if I had taken an amazing photo and then somebody recreated that and then sold it I think personally it's fine if you take a photo that you found online on Pinterest wherever and you recreate it for the purpose of practicing mm-hmm. um, but if you're making money off of that then yeah it's not that's just not okay and it's I think it's technically illegal Um, So it's really, really important if you're using photos to get permission from the photographer and make it very clear what you're planning on using the photo for, what you're going to sell it, how much you're going to sell it for, if you're going to make prints. I personally make, don't make, that sounded very ominous. I ask all of my photographers to uh, sign uh, an agreement as well, just to protect both of us. So that it's very clear that they still own the rights to the photo, but I own the rights to the artwork and any prints indefinitely. Just in case, um, it's always good to have that written and signed just in case anyone changes their mind later on down the line and you've already created the artwork. But yeah, I think it's important to be fair. And at the end of the day, you're using another creative's piece of work for your benefit, whether that be for practicing or for selling or just for promotion of your own artwork. So it's important to be fair and honest and open. And hopefully if you're honest about it, then you can develop good relationships with photographers. And then, you know, going forward, you can use more of their stuff. I mean, I paint a lot of African animals or animals from Antarctica or the Arctic. And I don't personally have access to those animals. So I kind of need to use photos that professional photographers have taken. Um, I mean, I do have plans to go and shoot them in the wild. I've just bought a new camera. So fingers crossed, if that goes ahead, I can then go and take some of my own photos, create the art, and then sell the piece and donate a percentage of that back to the country where I got the the picture. And it would just be an amazing full circle moment. Um, But until that happens, uh, yeah, really, really important. Yeah, and I, you know, I've had a relationship with a, a few photographers, and people don't need to be fearful that you're going to have to, you know, fork out a thousand dollars for use of a of a photograph. Um, in the photographers I've spoken with, they'll just say, "Fine, go ahead." Uh, I did use a a puffin photo from a photographer in England, and all he wanted was a print, so I sent him oh, a print. Which photographer was that? Do you remember? Uh, John Bishop. Oh, great! I'll, I'll check check stuff out. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think it's Skoma Island, 
where the puffins go. And I'd love to go there, actually, because, yeah, there's some amazing sites there. People get amazing photos. We went out to Newfoundland, which has a huge number of puffins, but I didn't really have a great photo to work with. And I saw his and reached out to him, and he was so kind and sent him a print when I was done. I just did it in pencil. Amazing. Yeah, photographers, I've never yet come across a photographer who's been rude or standoffish or you know questioned my integrity sort of thing and I've worked with a lot of photographers that again will just say yeah it's fine I just do this as a hobby use what you want or they'll say yeah sure send me a print sometimes photographers will ask for a percentage of what you sell the piece for Uh, I have had one or two ask for a percentage not just of the sale but of prints as well and I haven't personally used those photographers not because I don't want to give them the money because I think that's absolutely fine just for ease because to work out say 10% of the the sale and then 10% of each print and then I need to personally remember every time I sell a print to then give them 10% and I just don't for me it's just more of a time-consuming route to go down so I don't generally use photographers work if that's the case just because I'm quite lazy in that sense but um <laughs> it's a yeah. lot of business to do that it is and it's yeah. it's it would be much easier to just find a similar photo where it's just a one-off payment even if that actually ends up being more money I think I've got to a point now where I would rather spend more money for ease and time than uh than yeah than scrimp and be more stressed about what I'm doing sort of thing so when you create this composition in Lightroom or Photoshop and you then look at starting your painting, are you using like um, a projection or a grid method or something to Yeah, so I personally use, most of the time we use uh, the grid method, unless it's a smaller piece and I would can just quickly sketch it out. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I'll use the grid method and uh, put the piece together in Photoshop. I mean, years ago, I used to sketch and I had like a sketchbook and I would draw the piece and then would do lots of practice sketches and I would put together a piece in my mind and then sketch it out and do it like that. But do you know what? I haven't sketched for so long now, just purely because I do everything on the computer now. And yeah, I'll put together the piece on, say, Photoshop. You can actually create a guide layout in Photoshop and then decide how many rows and how many columns you want and then replicate that across sort of thing awesome yeah because i think you know some people may feel it's it's cheating but it's it's really not especially if you're doing something 40 by 60 inches um, yeah i mean in fact i've just i've just started on a commission which is uh 1.2 meters by 1.1 meters so again it's quite big i'm not sure what that is in inches um but I used the grid method and after I used it, I looked back and I thought, oh, thank God I used that grid method because it's so, almost so big, it would have been hard for me to kind of take a step back and and sort of gauge the perspective and the ratio and the proportions of the animal. And um, it just saved me so much time. And I know that the grid method, some people do feel almost guilty about using it because it feels like cheating. Mm-hmm. But... I personally find that when I haven't used the grid method and I've started painting an animal and specifically animal animals and people, the proportions need to be correct because otherwise it, the whole thing just looks ridiculous. And there'll be something that I've kind of done wrong or doesn't look quite right and I'll be trying to fix it. 
and I'll go over it again and again and again and again and I waste so much time when if I just used the grid method in the first place I would have saved all that time it's just it's just a um the grid method to me is just a tool just like a pencil or a paintbrush or the paint itself the grid just helps makes life easier yeah i i would agree i don't i haven't used it because i don't think i've had large enough pieces that i'm still playing around um i did use the transfer method on one piece okay but that was uh, it was two or three years ago, I think I did that. But I appreciate you talking about it because I think, you know, people hold this back and they don't want to share how they do things. And I, I appreciate you being open on, on both that and uh, and the photographs. And mm, I mean, and there's no that. point. Yeah, I don't think for me there's any point in pretending. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, I've already said I'm quite um, mathsy and sciencey, And I would say I'm more math- mathematical than I am creative in some ways and so for me I actually quite enjoy the grid method and I get excited about sort of dividing up the canvas and working out how many centimeters across I need to do it and how many centimeters down yeah in my sort of logical mind it's part it's a big part of the job um, and it's not cheating and it's I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of Uh, again just like using photos Mm -hmm. um, if you're if you're going for a realistic style you have to be pretty special you know pretty impressive to be able to sort of in your mind create an image of say a tiger and then paint that perfectly without looking at photos or using the grid method I think that would be very very impressive but very few people I think would be able to do that. So you mentioned a new camera Uh, so that is to photograph your work because you do your own photography for your work is that right? I do yeah. And did you buy the camera for that? Yes, I did. Okay. So I take all the photos of uh, for the print myself, unless a piece is particularly big or particularly tricky in terms of getting the lighting right. I'll take it to a studio to be shot uh, by the professionals. But for the most part, I'll photograph the pieces myself for print using a studio setup and lighting and a decent lens and uh, Photoshop and Lightroom. And then again, taking pictures and videos in the studio of the process for social media so my camera is something that I use almost every day especially when I'm when I'm painting and yeah I I broke mine the other day a couple of weeks ago now one of the lenses got jammed on it and it wasn't a particularly expensive camera it was just an old Canon SLR that I'd bought secondhand off my friend and I yanked the lens off and it sort of broke both the lens and the camera (laughs) simultaneously Uh, I just felt so disappointed in myself but I'd also I had promised myself that when it was time to get a new camera I would buy a good one and I would invest in something decent something that I can use in the studio but also use if I do ever go out on sort of safari or on an expedition to take photos that I can use for paintings so yeah I got a Sony a7 Mark III nice. and uh, a couple of nice lenses for it. So I'm very excited. I've just this morning while I was eating my breakfast, I was looking through the instruction manual and uh, was learning how to use it so that I can take good photos. I love that part of new equipment, looking through the manual and seeing all the settings and knowing that you're only taking in 20%. So I'm going to have to read this four or five times to. Yeah, I but... actually thought that <laughs> this morning when I read something and I went, oh, cool, it does that. And then I thought to myself, 
I'm going to forget that by tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the way. And then you'll forget. And then, yeah, you'll discover some other exciting thing that it does. It's just a really cool camera. And it's got so many cool, like it's got, this is what I really nerded out about. It's got, um, not only has it got an eye tracking focus that will track your face, but it's got an animal eye tracking. Really? Yeah. So it's specifically a very good camera for photographing animals because it will track the animal's eye and focus on the animal sophie i think (laughs) i think i may have a new camera in the future (laughs) i mean i'm not gonna lie it wasn't cheap um but it was an investment and again this is one of those things about being an artist you kind of have to be willing to invest and spend the money knowing that it's something that you're going to use every day and get good good usage out of so yeah, it wasn't, wasn't cheap, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't the most expensive camera because I'm not a photographer for a living. So I couldn't quite justify getting one of the ridiculously expensive ones, but right. it was, it was not cheap. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I've been through a number of Canon digital SLRs. I now have a, an Olympus, which now is no longer a photography company. Um, oh, I didn't I just, know that. Yeah, the uh, so I'm not, I'm not I'm not happy about that. It's got a great macro, so I've got three lenses for it. I bought a separate Nikon that has like an eighty times zoom just to get the really distant shots. But I really want a good DSLR, and it seems like Sony is going to be the way to go. I think yeah, I think a lot of people are getting mirrorless cameras now as mm-hmm. well, and I think Sony are particularly well renowned for being good mirrorless cameras. Um, that everybody because I basically I don't really know much about cameras so I basically put up a thing on my Instagram story saying I need a camera I know a lot of photographers follow me please what should I get and loads of people were saying the Sony a7 Mark III a few other Sony cameras were mentioned but almost everybody said a mirrorless camera so yeah I just went for that and then bought invested in some decent uh, lenses I got a 50 millimeter and then I got like a zoom lens because i take photos of birds and stuff outside my cabin where i live so yeah <laughs> yeah i saw your squirrel photos uh i think it's in your story maybe was like... yeah that was squirrel was my my little uh model because i just just got this camera yesterday and i was so excited and i didn't have anything to take photos of i think i took a couple of pictures of like the plants in my house and they looked beautiful and then i was sort of wildly looking around like what can i what can i take a photo of and this little squirrel just came and he was, or she was eating the seeds that had been dropped down from the bird feeder. So I just started snapping away through the window as well. That shot was taken. Um, awesome. So I was quite, quite impressed with that, I think. Yeah, I keep hearing blue jays, but I don't know if that's me or you. Because <laughs> I have them outside my window, but I'm not sure oh, if you've got yeah. birds there. It, it'll be you, I think. I have got birds, but I've only got, I've got half inches and green finches and English birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, do you have blue jays in england uh I, do you know what i don't know that's okay. a good question for a, a good birder i would yes. say i'm re- again bird birding so to speak is a hobby i've gotten into in the past year so i'm very very new to it uh, it was just a lockdown hobby because I, I literally live in the middle of the forest and uh and all i could do during lockdown was just look at birds <laughs> so i'll get into bird photography <laughs> Well, now you've got a great camera for it too. So exactly, yeah, mm. very exciting. So, do you um, do you do any digital work like in in Procreate or Photoshop? Like, like I, mm. I don't know if you have an iPad. Maybe I should ask that question first. But do you do any kind of digital work beyond composition? Yeah, no, I don't because I don't have an iPad. And in fact, again, I broke my 
I sound like I just break everything. I broke my MacBook. Um, it was probably about a year ago now. And I basically had something plugged into the, to the USB port on the MacBook. And as I was walking from the kitchen to the living room, my whatever was plugged into it sort of like caught in a cupboard door door and I carried on moving but the laptop didn't <laughs> and so it just flew out of my hands and just completely like smashed the whole thing and it wasn't half the screen wasn't working I took it to the place to get mended and they said that um it would probably cost more to mend than it would just to get a new lap a new macbook because it was just so old so I was umming and ahhing about whether to get um, an iPad Pro or a new MacBook Pro because for that very reason, because I wanted to do sort of like uh, digital art and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I ended up going for the MacBook Pro just for ease. And yeah, I haven't yet to do any digital art. Maybe that'll be my next investment. But it sounds fun though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure it's fun. I I try and I'm trying to do more of it right now. It's about maybe 30% of the work that I do, but uh, it is kind of fun. I've done it for like doing layouts and stuff in my, yeah. like it's, it's great to be able to just sketch quickly and then move things around. But I mean, you could do that in Photoshop as well, but um, yeah. Yeah. Fun. I mean, I think iPad's probably a lot easier and with my MacBook where I've got a new, um, it's like a bigger, it's like the 16 inch MacBook. The okay. trackpad is huge. <laughs> And the yes. trackpad is almost the size of an iPad on this on this laptop, and it's given me real wrist issues. Um, oh. Trying, and I, I mean, I suffer from tendon issues in my wrist anyway from all the painting and stuff. And I play a lot of tennis, but yeah, it's um, it's harder, in my opinion, on Photoshop and like drawing things out on a MacBook than it would be on an iPad. Well, it's uh, maybe it'll come because <laughs> I think. I do I do hope that more professional apps start appearing on the iPad and I think it'll become much more useful for us creatives. I think they've done a good job, but I just think it needs to there needs to be more. Procreate yeah. is awesome. I, I'm I just hope the company stays around because I paid for it like three years ago and I haven't given them any more money. So I just want to give them more money and they're not <laughs> allowing me to do that. Oh. I mean, I've seen pieces of artwork that have been created on Procreate and have thought that they were just paintings and it just it looks so realistic it's really impressive and i've sort of seen videos of people creating stuff on the ipad really impressive technology how they've done that yeah there's um it's really changed a lot of people and how they create but uh at at the same time i really enjoy the scratchiness of a of of paper Um, i'm not going to say canvas because i'm not there yet but uh, the tact, you know, having that kind of tactile feedback is is fantastic. In all the pieces you you've done, what maybe I know the answer already. What's what's the one you're most proud of? Uh, out of interest, which one do you think I'm going to say? Your most recent one. <laughs> which one's that? Uh, well, I'm I'm going to whatever because you're critical. I don't know if you're feeling <laughs> that maybe your most recent piece is your best piece. Yeah, generally speaking, I do think that normally. Um, I think my most recent one was Resurgum, the whale shark, but I might be wrong. Um, no, I think actually the one that I'm most proud of so far was, there's a couple, one of them revival just for the technical side of things. It was quite difficult because it was the bison and it was the, the woolly texture of the bison fur or wool. Uh, it's quite wiry. 
And I realised as I was painting it that I've never really painted any of anything of that texture before. And I was finding it kind of tricky and I was trying to think, why, why am I finding this so difficult? And then I realised it's because I'd never done anything similar before. And so for me, I was proud of how that turned out because I think it turned out okay. And then the other one is the March, just because it was, I mean, it was like 80, I think it was 82 or 82 or 88 penguins or something. And yeah, that one was probably the most taxing in terms of physically doing it. That was when I started to develop my wrist problems. And then mentally, I was stressing about finishing it. And I had all this other stuff that I needed to do as well. And so I think mentally that kind of impacted on the stress my wrist was going through as well so the whole painting was just a bit of a stress basically and so when I finished it and then it got shortlisted in the David Shepherd Wildlife Artist of the Year competition and got highly commended and I think it was unanimously loved by the judges it made me feel very proud because um, it's kind of taken so much to paint and like technically it wasn't a very difficult painting to produce because it's just once you get the hang of painting one penguin, you just do that again and again and again, <laughs> 80 mm-hmm. odd times. But yeah, it was just, it was a lot at the time. And actually through that painting, I got, I came second, I just found out recently, I came second in the BBC Wildlife Magazine People's Choice Award. Wow. I think I was eight or seven votes off winning. <laughs> oh no. So yeah. Congrats. Thank you. Wow, yeah, was that's incredible. Proud, proud. Yeah, I have. Uh, I have a question about each, um, maybe more of a comment around the bison, but because um, I've done a bison as well, I did it in graphite, and I, I, the horn on that is incredible. Um, oh, but I appreciate the challenge in drawing a bison because they have that kind of difference in fur that is so. I mean, I mean, it's such a visible difference between like the top of the head versus the mattiness, kind of the wet, thicky, I'm really using good English here, but um, <laughs> it's, it's really like a matted um, bit of fur that they have kind of around their neck and, and down on their chest versus what's on the top of their head. And it's yeah. a real challenge kind of um, rendering that. And I think you did it beautifully. Like when I saw your bison, it brought me back to the one I did. And it's like, wow, she just nailed it with those kind of the clumpiness of some of the fur. Um, that was the thing that first pulled me into that piece was uh, not so much the horn. I think the horn's fantastic, but having done one, it's the fur and uh, you yeah. really nailed it with that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, you're right. It, the the fur further down or the, the wool further down clumped yeah. up into these kind of matted groups, almost like groups of wool. But then the wool on top is almost just like a frizzy hair in, mm-hmm. in its texture. So it's really, I mean, the the wool on top was definitely easier because it's just like painting frizzy curly hair but yeah it was it was tricky um and it took a minute to kind of get get my head around what what I was doing but again it's just one of those things you are always learning on the job and always improving do you do a background with all your work uh what do you mean by background like do you uh, have you done any pieces and I'm, I'm flipping through here but have you done any pieces where it's just on a white like the the, the the object, um, the animal, is just on a white background, or do you always integrate some kind of uh, background into it? Uh, I mean, for the most part, I try and have a background, either a portrait background or the environment that the animal's in. Right. Um, 
The closest I've got to white backgrounds would be the penguins. So the March and the March 2 and also Solitary Penguin. That was just one penguin with a white background. But again, that could just be snow. <laughs> so it's, you know, up to the viewer really. But um, I have done drawings that are just plain white backgrounds um, because I think they look quite cool with white backgrounds drawings. Yeah, I was just flipping through and, and you know, when I look at the bison and the giraffe uh, with the backgrounds, the backgrounds are just perfect in the way that they kind of highlight um, the animal. And Oh, thank you. I think uh, that's brilliant. I wanted to. So my question about the penguins is, when you start when you started that piece, and this is just me, non acrylic painter, non painter guy. Did you go with? You're using a white canvas, but did you go with an initial kind of white layer of acrylic on top, and then start building up? Like you always cover the canvas, right? Do you? Yes. So I have my canvases made bespokely because I'm kind of too lazy to make my own. <laughs> I know a lot of artists do stretch their own canvases, but it, it goes back to what I said earlier about I would rather pay more and then have the ease of getting it delivered to me, to be honest, because time is money at the end of the day. So, And mm -hmm. I would never be able to do a job as good as the professionals do. Um, and I have them prime it. And then when it comes, I'll always give it a few base coats anyway uh, of paint with the medium, usually like a paint dinner. And then, yeah, build it up. But with the penguins, because it was a white canvas and then I did a few white layers on top, I actually just started with the penguins and then went over the top of the bottom of the penguins with a very light dusting of white again. So it looks like the snow looks like they're in, in the middle of a snowstorm, but that white was actually put on top of the okay. penguins once I'd finished them. So I actually painted almost all the penguins in one row and then just went over with the white on top and then was able to just go around with the white afterwards and kneeing it up a bit. Yeah, what struck me, I think, most about the penguins, it reminded me of um, another artist that I had on here, Robert Bateman. Oh, yeah, um, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's and ma uh, amazing artwork. Yes, and your piece reminded me of him uh, in the work that he's done with that kind of whitewash. Um, in this yeah. case, it was snow, but it uh, reminded me of his work and I think it just looks brilliant. Oh, wow. Yeah, his work's amazing. I'm sure, does he do, he does a lot of the animals in their environments? Correct. Yeah, yeah, I've got stuff up. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, in fact, I've done a lot of animal portraits, like the giraffe and the bison, with a very sort of nondescript background. But recently, I think the March and the March 2 actually spurred me on to think more about sort of storyline behind a, a piece and the narrative and what's going on. And I think it's hard to do that without including the sort of environment that the animals are in as well. So yeah, that's why at the moment I'm working on a, a couple of cheetahs and they will be in their natural habitat, which is quite exciting. So it's okay. going to be like sort of a golden hour grassy scene. That's cool. Yeah, I you know, when I look at the penguin piece, I'm doing all this while we're talking, but when I look at the penguin piece, <laughs> I can hear the wind. Right. Yeah, that's, and, uh, I, in fact, I've heard that before. Somebody else said that. And I think the comment that the judges in the David Shepherd Wildlife Artist of the Year competition said that the comment was, it made everyone feel cold <laughs> looking at it. <laughs> that's brilliant. You've taken it upon yourself with all the work you're doing with wildlife to be able to give something back as well. And I really admire you for doing that because being an artist is hard enough. 
but to take a portion of what you do and to give back. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you've done? Mm, yeah, so when I decided I wanted wanted to pursue being an artist, I also simultaneously decided that I wanted to give 10% of all of my profits to wildlife and conservation charities or animal welfare charities. And I did have a few people at the time when I told them this sort of say, like, are you sure? Like, that's, you know, that's quite a lot of money. And especially when you're just starting out. And a few people just sort of said, why don't you do that once you're established? But I honestly think in some strange way, giving that 10% away actually makes you more successful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a strange one. You would think that you would be 10% out of pocket by giving 10% to a charity, but actually it kind of in a weird way makes me more productive, gives me more passion and more drive because I know that these charities are benefiting from my art and in turn the animals are then benefiting, so I'm giving back. And so I'm able to create more art. And also I've had some amazing opportunities working with charities and um, stuff like that. My collectors and the people that buy my art, they love the fact that a certain, well, they know that a certain percentage is going back to animals and to conservation. And so it sort of in, encourages them to buy art because they feel like they're, they're giving back as well through purchasing the art. I just think it's, it's a winner all round. Um, there's just something, something, I don't know, interesting about giving away somehow attracts back to you. And so for me, it's never been difficult to give that money away because I know that it'll be coming back to me in all, all sorts of ways. And yeah, it would just give me more motivation, I think, as well. Yeah, and I guess, uh, you know, working with photographers and, and all of that, it makes it easier to say that your work is going to, into something that's going to produce 10% or 10% of the profits will go to a foundation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What I would say, though, is that, that some people do claim to donate certain percentage to certain charities. What I would say is if you're planning on doing that, to make sure it's something that you are genuinely passionate about and you're not just doing it to look good or to look charitable because then it will start to feel like a burden and it will it probably won't have as positive an effect. Whereas for me, because I've always loved animals and I've always cared about them and I've cared about the environment and it's always been a huge passion for me, it's so easy to give that money to the charity because it's come it's almost like um it's almost like paying tax like if it's coming out of your income you don't even notice it go you know it's going but you don't you don't sit up at night thinking oh I shouldn't have spent all that money on tax because you don't really have a choice and so for me because I care so much about the animals and the environment and the conservation side of things Mm. it just goes out without me really thinking about it um whereas yeah if I were to say oh I'm going to donate a certain percentage to I don't know something I'm not as passionate about I probably would sit there and think like oh should I be spending this money don't know I haven't had much coming in this month so yeah it's important to make sure that it's actually something that you care about for sure so can I ask you for the the person listening if they're thinking about doing something like this how do you go about deciding who you give the 10 percent to how did you do Uh, that or how would you recommend it well, I mean, there's a few ways you could do it. I mean, you could just choose one charity and go for that. I personally will donate to the charity that has something to do with the piece specifically. Or, for example, the March, the March um, 
because it was shortlisted in the David Shepherd competition. Mm-hmm. Th- I think 30% of that will go to David Shepherd. And I just thought, you know what, I'll do that with the March 2 as well. 10% to David Shepherd because um, it's not up for as much money, to be fair. Just for ease. For example, if I might sell an elephant or a rhino, I will give 10% to Tusk. The, uh, the whale shark, 10% went to the Shark Trust in the UK. Uh, and that way I'm able to sort of spread it out between hmm. um, different charities. And also if a person has bought a piece of art, for example, the whale shark, then the chances are they have an interest in that animal. And so I was then able to say to the the buyer and the collector that bought the whale shark, oh, I, you know, just to let you know, you've bought this piece, so £1,100 has now gone to the Shark Trust. And then it's really, it's them that's given the money. It's not me, it's them that's done that. And so it makes them feel better. And yeah, I think that's, for me, is a good way of doing it. But it, just for ease, it might be easier just to choose one charity and uh, do it like that, set up some kind of direct debit or something. Or maybe a Sophie Green Foundation. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that would be a lot of work, though. <laughs> yes. There's, yeah, I don't think I would be able to do it yeah. Do it justice. <laughs> well, maybe at some point. Robert Bateman did it. Maybe it's around the corner yeah. for you. Right, exactly, yeah. And David Shepard as well. Yeah. There's some, yeah. There's some great char- great foundations out there. I mean, I personally, I would rather, I think, go out and do work in sort of like sanctuaries and stuff like that with the animals. That would mm-hmm. be, for me, oh, that would be the, the best. So can I ask you, you know, with regard to the environment and the animals, what has you, what keeps you up at night when you think about that right now? Like, we're not talking about art well, anymore, but I'm just wondering what keeps you up at night around uh, the world and the environment? I mean, nothing really, because... I've spoken a lot about eco-anxiety with other conservationists and conservation artists. And I think the problem is, is when you focus on an area of conservation, you are so inundated with negativity that it is so easy to lose sleep and to become anxious and to not feel like you're doing enough. And so it has taken me a while to, to wrap my head around that and to be able to park that so that I do get a good night's sleep. But yeah, I mean, the big ones for me are global warming because it impacts everybody and everybody has an effect on it you know stuff like hunting and poaching is terrible but if you don't live in that environment it's easier to switch off to the fact that that's happening and if you're not actively hunting or poaching it can be easy to say well I don't do that like I'm not to blame but global warming we all do something that contributes to global warming and we're all gonna feel the effects of it in fact we already are and so that, that's one I'm passionate about because it, it's so easy for people to make small changes that can make a difference. And yet so many people don't because they feel like, you know, I'm just one person. What can I do? But yeah, that, that would be probably the main one for me. And that was what inspired my piece, Thin Ice, The Polar Bear. And I'm sure okay. there'll be other, other global warming related pieces to come as well. But yeah, of course, obviously, you know, the animal cruelty as well. I can't, um, I can't spend too much time thinking about that. As long as I know that I'm doing my bit and I'm contributing and I'm donating and I'm raising awareness, I try not to watch videos, look at pictures, anything that's going to be too evocative or heartbreaking to me. I don't respond well to stuff like that. 
makes me switch off. I can't deal with it. It's too emotional. But yeah, those are the those are the real heartbreaking ones. So let's take it a different direction and end this this line of questioning <laughs> on something yeah. different. What what are you most encouraged? What what are you most excited about with regard to the environment and um, animals at this point? And I think at this point, it seems to be clicking with a lot of people that we're all connected and we can't just live as a species that thinks that we're better than every every other species and that we can do whatever we want with this planet and take whatever we want. I think it's slowly starting to click with a lot of people um, that you know the interconnectedness of the universe or the world. Um, means that we need to actually make an effort to fix all the issues and so now more than ever that I have witnessed I think people are starting to make changes with their own lifestyle people are starting to be a bit more conscious of you know their um, buying habits and their um, eating habits and uh, you see more more and more people caring and signing petitions and I mean, I don't know if this is just because I work in the conservation sphere, but I see a lot of people on social media, particularly like Twitter, people seem to be caring about it, which for me is really inspiring and motivating and it's great to see. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that still either don't understand or don't care. But yeah, I think as time goes on, more and more people will start to... Uh, jump on board and try to make a change. I would agree with that. And, you know, we want to have a positive message in the podcast. And I think, you know, I see it with my my daughters. I see it with the younger generation. They're becoming much more aware of our interconnectedness, not just with individuals around the world and, you know, equity and diversity. But, you know, in some ways, the equity and diversity includes the planet itself. And, uh, I see people kind of including that as part of their thought process more than more than ever, especially growing up. I'm in my n- near mid fifties. Jeez, I hate saying that, um, <laughs> but uh, it's a different place than it was thirty, forty years ago, and I think in, in a good way in many respects. So uh, I would I would yeah. echo what you're saying. I agree, and I think yeah, like like you were saying, the younger generations. It's obviously a shame that they have inherited this from generations gone by, but um, they seem a lot a lot more inspired to act and to make a difference which is great and I still do what do a lot of work with schools um, and I know that a lot of schools will show the children my artwork and explain how I'm using my art to make a difference and yeah I think teachers and educators are doing an amazing job as well of inspiring uh, the younger generations and yeah it's, it's great. So being an artist and having been a teacher have you thought about teaching art? I mean, I've thought about it um, and I wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm just not a great art teacher. I mean, even when I worked at the school, I kept the fact that I was an artist very quiet. I didn't really tell anyone about it. And so when I did eventually make the move into being a full-time artist, a lot of the people that I worked with at the school were like, what? Like, we didn't know you did that. Like, oh my God, how, you know, it was just really surprising. But I knew that if I said, you know, oh, I, I do these paintings or drawings, everyone would be like, oh, will you, will you uh, cover my class and teach them art? Or will you teach my class art? And I'm just not that great at teaching it. A lot of people ask if I do tutorials and I'll do like very short little videos on Instagram and stuff just to give people tips and pointers. But I've never really been 
that inspired to do a tutorial like a proper long tutorial or teach lessons to be honest yeah I it's just not for me but you know never know maybe one day never say never <laughs> right <laughs> so can I ask you um you done this thing called art basket as well mm. and can you talk a little bit about that because I think that's I mean it's not like you you have all this time available but you still seem to find space for these things. So can you talk a little bit about Art Basket? Yeah, good point. Um, so Art Basket is my company and it's sort of like an online gallery and store that sells people's artwork. It's all curated. So it's sort of like, it's not like Art Finder where you can just stick your art up no matter what. It's just a diverse range of different artists. And I started it when I started trying to put my own work online and selling my own pieces. I sort of made a website and did all of that. And I've always been quite techy. I enjoy making websites and doing the social media aspect and making things look great on the computer. And I realized that a lot of artists don't know how to do that and aren't very good at that. And I think, yeah, that's where modern day artists sometimes struggle because everything kind of is moving online and brick and mortar galleries still have their place in the industry. But for the most part, and I think particularly during lockdown, we realised how unnecessary sort of high street stores and stuff are. And so, yeah, I set it up so that other artists could showcase their artwork on it as well as mine and then sell their artwork and Art Basket would do all of the marketing and stuff like that and the stuff that some artists don't know how to do. And a lot of artists do and they're amazing at it. But yeah, it, it never hurts to have your art on more than one platform especially in terms of like CEO and CEO, SEO, sorry, um, and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's why I set it up. And again, 10% of the profits go to conservation charities. Um, it's just my, yeah, my little side project. And again, like I don't, you're right, I don't have that much time, but it's just something that I've managed to make work. That's awesome. I'm in a, um, I don't know if you use the app Clubhouse, which is kind of a social audio platform. I, I don't use it, but I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of artists in there. And one of the most popular topics is, you know, websites and social media and how to use it and galleries and whether you should be in galleries and are galleries still relevant? And yeah, what's your comment on that? So again, it's I think it's personal preference and what works for you. And uh, it works differently in different countries. So in England it's very rare that you're going to be sort of affiliated with a specific gallery, but you're more likely to be um, signed to a publishing house. And then the publishing house will send out your artwork to all of the galleries. And then those galleries will decide if they want to take some of your art or buy some of your art to sell. Um, and so I did consider signing with a publishing house, um, but they do take huge uh, commission and me for me personally I don't need to be with a publishing house to sell my art so the originals will sell okay without one and they'll sell fairly quickly and I get 100% of the money and then 10% will go to the charities whereas if I was with a publishing house they would sell it just as quickly but probably for less than I sell I've seen it with other artists that I know whose artwork is amazing where a publishing house has just got it a bit wrong and then they've sold their art for quite a lot lower than what they would probably be able to get it get for it anyway 
and then yeah given like 70 80 percent to the publishing house and then are left with not very much one of the benefits though is if you're not very good at the social media and the selling your artwork online and stuff is that they will be able to get your artwork out overnight to hundreds of galleries all over the country you know potentially uh, all over the world um, and they will do all of the prints for you so I sort of take all the photos for my prints myself sell them myself get them printed at my printers um, whereas the publishing house will do all of that for you and they're probably more likely to do a run of like 250 prints rather than smaller edition sizes mm-hmm. so you know you'll make you'll make some money from that but you will be giving a lot to the publishing house in commission so it's really really up to you and if you think it's easier for you you'd, you'd rather just focus on creating art and then just give it to the publishing house and they can sort all of that out let them take the commission and do all of the social media and all of that and then you can just focus on the art then I think it's great I personally like doing all of the social media I, I quite enjoy marketing I, I love business and stuff like that and the maths and for me giving that away to somebody else would actually probably I, I don't think I would like doing that to be honest and so I prefer to do all of that myself and get 100% of the money um but yeah it's, it's definitely there's pros and cons to both and I'm sure the charities that you help support uh, appreciate your efforts in doing that as well because 10% yeah. <laughs> of that is 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 much higher right. than 10% of a gallery driven uh, yeah business. exactly right. yeah and I mean I don't personally know I haven't been signed with a publishing house I don't know if I would be able to give a percentage away to the charities if I did it that way because I may just be scraping by or may not be able to do it full time but the way I do it at the moment works best for me in terms of my business goals so yeah and I think what I really and there's this is a discussion that comes up is what do you post on Instagram right do you post a, a beautiful curated uh, scene with these artificial environments with your art hanging above a couch or do you post the works in progress with your hand in there and I love the way you do it and I tell everyone to do the same thing you know I oh, think great. it's more engaging to see the work in mm-hmm. progress to see that oh as you're doing your cheetah that you can see the grid you can see the the, the, the kind of the transition to where the where the painting will finally be I love that you do that. Don't stop doing that. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> would you, what would your recommendation be to other artists who are thinking about what should I post and what should I not? I mean, I always say when it comes to social media, post what you would like to see. So if you weren't you, would you follow you? Is <laughs> basically what I ask myself. And if I wasn't me, would I go on my page and think, oh, that looks like an interesting page? Um, and I know that there are a lot of, pages very successful pages as well with a lot of followers that only post for example they'll post a painting once it's finished or they may post one or two in progress shots but very little else you know I like to mix it up a little bit um it's just my personal preference I guess I like to have photos of me painting and then the next one might be a video of the painting progress and then you know, sometimes I might post a picture of the art sort of in situ and it's all very beautiful looking. But I think it's only fair to be honest with people and show people that there is a progress and art doesn't just spring out of nowhere, all perfect and finished. And I think 
I, I personally think that's more interesting to people to see the progress and to see that you do make mistakes or to see, oh, what's that grid she's using? You know, that sort of thing, because that's how you learn. And I think that that's probably more interesting to people that don't do art themselves to see as well. Um, and that's just what I've personally found. Do you feel like you're, I mean, you're quite prominent on both Instagram and Twitter. Do you feel like your audience, I'm going to speak to Instagram because it's obviously more visual. Do you feel like, do you see them as active participants in your art life? Or do you see them as passive? Like how much do they influence what you do? I think that, yeah, I definitely think that they are active because if it wasn't for for the people that follow along on the journey, I don't think I would be able to do, to do it for a living. But in terms of them influencing what I post, I try not to let anybody or anything influence me too much and stress me out too much because social media can be very all-consuming. Obviously, I love to know what people like to see. I love to know what makes people tick so that I can give them more of that. But for me, it's it's not so much about how many likes is this post getting and how many likes is that post getting. It's more about the process and enjoying the process and putting together the videos. And I actually personally enjoy that. I, I like using Premiere Pro and putting together a video um, and stuff like that. And so I would say that the people that come along f- for the ride, they they're active in that they inspire me and motivate me and all the comments are just so lovely to read and so you know I'm always really really grateful when I see people like taking the time out of their day to comment on one of my posts and I can't obviously can't reply to every single comment and message and and stuff but it really spurs me on so I would say active but yeah without without letting other people's opinions affect me too much in terms of social media. If you decided to change your subject or change your medium, do you think you would think about your Instagram followers before you did that? Mm, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that that wouldn't come into it, to be honest, only because, I mean, not so much Instagram, but Twitter, for example, I probably sell most of my artwork through Twitter. Okay. And to suddenly decide... I'm not going to paint animals anymore. I'm going to paint, I don't know, people. I understand that that would take a good few months or even years to really develop my skill and to become a good enough artist of people to be able to sell my art. And so inevitably, I would probably maybe lose a bit of interest on social media um, or people that are following me because they love animals and wildlife, not necessarily art would probably think "Mm, I'm not really that fussed about people and maybe unfollow or you know I think sales would take a take a hit but it's the same in that if you're signed with a a publishing house you you're signed with a publishing house or a gallery with the understanding that you're going to give them a certain type of art and so if you suddenly decide I'm not going to do that anymore you would have to contact the publishing house or the gallery and say here's what's going to change. And then it would be up to them to decide whether they still sell your artwork or not. So they might say, well, that's not why we signed you to us. Mm-hmm. So we're going to drop you. And then you'd probably be, probably be out of quite a lot of money. And it's the same with social media in some ways. They kind of act in some ways as your publishing house. And you might put out right. some content to your followers and they say, well, that's not why I followed you. And then they would unfollow you. 
and then you've lost some sales. So I don't think it's silly to think I must take social media into account because nowadays, unfortunately, it is a big part of any business, social media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe this will be the last question on social media, but what advice would you give to an artist who's building up um, a social media following, whether it be on Twitter or Instagram? What advice would you provide to them? I would say make sure that your content is very high quality in that you use, if you can, um, equipment that's going to give you sort of nice, crisp shots and photos. Even if you've just got your phone, make sure that the lighting is good and you're not just taking blurry, dark shots on your phone and then uploading them because, I mean, ask yourself, would you be interested in seeing that on your timeline or would you be more drawn to like the, the colourful bright crisp shots that look really great you know it's all people are quite visual generally so they make sure that you're posting high quality photos or videos and post regularly and consistently you know try and post every day if you can or every other day I mean I I'm not an expert by any means but I I mean I try not to inundate people like I, I probably wouldn't post more than once a day or once or twice at most but at the same time, I know that when I've taken time off social media for a month or two for my own personal, you know, well-being, I've come back and found that it's really, really hard to then get the engagement back up again. So, yeah, try and post as, as, um, post as frequently as you can. And then I would say just engage with people um, and just take the time to reply to comments and, and you know, like comments on Twitter or whatever that may be, and just get to know people because, you know, social media is all about connecting with people. And I think we've lost a lot of that nowadays because it's just so normal to just go online and have people from all over the world on your newsfeed that you don't know. So, yeah, I think it's important to sort of connect with people and, yeah, make it an enjoyable experience. Don't put too much stock in it, but also take it seriously because it is your career sort of thing. Good advice. I like that. Mm-hmm, so can you maybe define what would a perfect day be for you as an artist? In terms of a like working day or a day off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a working day, like how does that look to you? How many hours do you start? Is there a, a ritual around what you do? Um, I mean, I've tried in the past to have a schedule and it hasn't really worked for me just because every day is so different and my to-do list every day is so different. I generally will always have my chill out time in the mornings. Uh, I'm quite a slow starter and I like to just relax, get up, have breakfast. And again, like this morning, I was like reading my um, the manual for my new camera over breakfast. And then I might do a bit of yoga. Do, I used to do a lot of journaling. I haven't done that lately. I've been so busy. But um, yeah, I just like to have quite a chilled out morning. That's my me time. And then around sort of like 12 o'clock, I'll start um, painting normally. And when I say chilled out morning, I, that's what usually when I do all of the computery stuff. So I'll do like all my emails and check social media, check sales, stuff like that will come in the morning. And then, yeah, sort of like midday, I'll start with the painting or whatever it is that I need to do at that time. And that goes on until like dinner time, really. And then I finish up half six seven have dinner and then wind down for the night uh, I used to paint 
I I used to work until sort of like 10 p.m. and then I'd just go straight to bed. And I think over lockdown, it kind of taught me to wind down every evening because I was kind of like, well, I'm not going anywhere. Like I'm I'm stuck in this house, so <laughs> right. I might as well, you know, enjoy it. So yeah, that that would be my day. But in terms of painting, sometimes I'll be painting all day, and sometimes. I won't paint at all for a week. It really depends on how much other stuff I've got to do. Right. Yeah. You sound uh, you sound very busy, but uh, it seems like you've found some balance, <laughs> which is which is always admirable. Yeah. So, do you have any like what's coming up for you in the next next uh, six months, year? Do you have upcoming exhibitions, or do you have any projects that you can talk about? Uh, yeah. So, in terms of exhibitions, I mean, things are sort of slowly starting to start back up again since COVID and galleries and stuff are reopening unfortunately that now means that everything that was planned pre-covid has been pushed back to now so i mean i have my giraffe contemplation 2 is going up in charity exhibition slash auction for the explorers against extinction i think that's coming up in october i think um in london so that'll be fun and yeah, lots and lots of projects. <laughs> I've got sort of like four things on the go at the moment. I've got a project. I don't think I can say what it is yet because it's not going to be released until September. Um, it's working alongside a company and a charity. So that'll be really fun because I think working with charities is always good fun because they're just always so grateful to have you on board that they kind of give you free reign to do whatever you want creatively. So that'll be fun. Um, and then I've got, well, I need to tick off some commissions because I've kind of let my commission waiting list go f- dusty for a while. Finishing off the cheetahs will be next on my agenda. I'm also in the process of putting together a portfolio for my literary agent that I just signed with. So I recently, a few months ago, signed with um, a literary agent with the idea of sort of doing paintings and pictures for books. And so I need to put together a portfolio for that. Um, So I imagine over the next six months to a year, that will sort of turn into something amazing. Uh, And yeah, in terms of an exhibition as well, I've for a while I've been meaning to put together a solo exhibition or an idea for a solo exhibition alongside a charity. I need to sort of sit down and really do the, do the maths on that one, but I expect that will happen in the next year or two. Well, it sounds like you're going to get busier. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Fill up. You've got all good. that spare time, right? So now you can Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside Art Basket and all the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's always good to be busy. Yeah, I would agree. It's good that to see that you're diversifying as well. And, and I think a lot of artists need to be mindful of multiple streams. And I, I think that's cool that you're doing that. Mm, yeah, but I think that's one of the best things as well about art or anything creative is that you open so many different avenues for yourself you know I'm, I've never really been too fixated on one path I'm always I've always been quite open to wherever things take me and so yeah if I get contacted by a literary agent and then end up signing to them and doing book work then that's amazing it's not something I ever considered before and now it's all of a sudden you know um, this amazing opportunity that's presented itself so I think by pigeonholing yourself into one area you might limit yourself but by being open to 
wherever the wind takes you. It's just it's more fun that way. So just along that line of, a, of you know, maybe something you've never dreamt of now is, is in your lap with regard to the, the, uh, the possibility of being in books. Um, are there kind of unrealized dreams that you have? Something in the future that you would like to do, someplace you'd like to go? Oh, yeah, definitely. I have so many, um, to some would probably seem quite outlandish dreams. But I always think if someone else has done it, then it's possible. Um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think, I want to do this, you know, it might sound crazy, but it must be possible because other people have done it. And there's so many things that I would love to do. Some of them I probably won't say because they, I don't know, I feel like it jinxes it a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of accountability <laughs> but, then, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then if it doesn't happen, I just seem like a loser or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, um travel has always been a big one for me I've always loved traveling it's always been quite an important part of my life and I think having that taken away from me during COVID as well it's just really really made me realize how important that is so I think a lot of travel hopefully will be in my future and, and working with animals and photographing animals and using my art and hopefully taking photos of the animals um, and raising awareness of conservation through travel will uh, would just be the dream, I think. Um, Are there a couple of areas in the world that you'd like to visit first with regard to animals and wildlife? Yeah, Africa is top of my list at the moment. Love to, I would love to go to Kenya and Zimbabwe uh, and a few others and shoot the animals there with a camera, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then I would love to go up to the Arctic as well on an expedition. And I have actually had conversations with a few people about that, um, a few sort of, um, or a couple of marine biologists. And uh, there's also some companies that actually take artists on exhibitions with them as like an onboard artist. Yeah, that would be amazing. But I think that over COVID, again, because of COVID, Mm -hmm. they were only really taking like, necessary people on uh, expeditions because they had to cut down on numbers so i think artists were probably bottom of the list <laughs> of right. people to take um and yeah i would love to go in, into uh, the antarctic as well and see the penguins hmm. but yeah those those three are the main ones at the moment i, I think it's great that you have two really really cold environments <laughs> um, to balance the africa so i think that's yeah. uh, that's wonderful it would be great to see you uh, travel to uh, you know the Antarctic or the Arctic at some point. That would be uh, that'd be awesome. That would be that would be amazing. Anything that involves animals and wildlife and raising awareness of conservation issues, I think, will be a winner for me. And in sort of incorporating my art into that as well would just be the cherry on top of the cake. So, can I ask you a question before we get into homework? What do you think's been the best advice you've ever received with regard to your creative career? I think probably the best advice that I have ever received, and I don't know if this is advice that I received personally, I can't remember who told me, or even if I just read it in a book somewhere, but is just to keep creating art, even if it's not selling. Because I think once you get that idea in in your head that I want to be an artist and I want to do it for a living... I think it's really easy to get down on yourself if you're not selling your art. 
and it can be easy to stop creating it if you're not selling it because like for example when I first started out and I wasn't really selling much I just had so much art in my house I had no space because it was just paint unsold paintings and prints everywhere and I would sort of like go to these art fairs back in the day and I would get all these prints made and then frame some of them and then have originals and I'd have all this stuff and then I would sell like a few pieces but then I would bring all of it back home again that I hadn't sold and it was just so demotivating and I became so wrapped up in what I was selling and what I wasn't selling that I almost forgot to create the art (laughs) in a way and the minute I stopped focusing on what I was selling and started focusing on what I was creating was actually putting more stuff out into the world and like improving my skill which is the main thing for me and more and more people were getting interested in my art and then the sales started to go up and then eventually I just didn't have any originals or any prints or anything in my studio for sale they'd all gone and then I found myself rushing to put artwork out so that I would have something to sell because everything was selling so quickly um but the main thing was focusing on doing the art and doing what I loved because that was why I got it into it in the first place and yeah it can be really really demotivating if you're not selling it and you know it's not going the way you want it to go uh, but yeah that that would be my advice or the, the person's advice whoever it was <laughs> <laughs> just take it on as my own now <laughs> I think it's okay if you own it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that's brilliant and you I've gone through that same thing and I think um That's a really good point. I think we need to abstract the creation from the business and success can be in the creation of what you of what you've made and, you know, to to separate that out and just keep making and keep creating and keep improving your skill. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really good point. Yes. Anyone who's listening, hear these words. I always think that you can be the most amazing businessman or businesswoman in the world but if you're not a very good artist, then you're probably not going to sell your art that easily. But you can be a terrible businesswoman or businessman and an amazing artist and still find ways of selling your art. So I think the art is more important. But business, obviously, if you've got both, then <laughs> right. you're golden. But And then embracing the, uh, the approach that you took where it's a phased approach from your previous career and moving into art slowly in a way that uh, means that you're not living uh, on the street, <laughs> mm, yeah. I think is, is a clever approach as well. So Exactly. Yeah, there is definitely that idea of the struggling artist and artists that are just living in squalor. And, you know, if, if that's for you, then I have respect for you in doing that. But I also have respect for people that are a bit smarter about it and will do it gradually and and more thought out approach sort of thing. I really love that. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I, and I always end every podcast with a bit of homework. I love the action item that um, the person listening can take and, and try and integrate into their life. So Sophie, what would you recommend as homework for the listener? So my homework for you is not specifically art themed, but I think it would really help with your art and I think going back to what I was saying about how demotivating it can be being a quote-unquote struggling artist my homework for you is to write down a list of everything that you're grateful for and everything that you are proud of yourself for achieving 
So, for example, if you haven't sold a piece of artwork all year, you might have, well, I'm really proud of myself for uh, creating this new piece last week. Or I'm really proud of myself because I managed to do this or draw this, which I wasn't able to do before. Um, And it can be as little as I sold a piece for this much money or, you know, it can be as small as you like. But I think that once you start doing that and if you make it a regular thing as well, you'll find that it becomes easier and easier to think of things that you're proud of and that you're grateful for. Um, Like even if it's just as simple as somebody on Instagram commented and said they liked my art. It can be as simple as that. And I'm really proud of myself. And this is actually something that I do a lot. And I used to do it every single day. I would sit down and I would write down what I was grateful for. Not specifically with art, but it might be I'm grateful for the roof over my head or the food in the fridge or this, this and this. And the more I started doing that in my journal, the more that sort of transferred over into my brain. (laughs) And now whenever I have a moment where I just feel really overwhelmed or really demotivated or stressed or something hasn't gone quite right or I've just found out that a piece hasn't been shortlisted in a competition or something and it's a bit of a downer I will do something for example I'll sketch out the the beginnings of a commission or something and then I'll say to myself in my head and I'll genuinely feel it I'm really proud of myself for doing that that was really good because I felt a bit down and I actually went and did something and I achieved something today and even if it's as small as just doing the outline of a, of a tiger or whatever it might be I tell myself that I'm proud of myself and it is a real mood lifter and it yeah it's just a way of feeling more motivated I think that's brilliant I totally embrace the idea of like a gratitude journal the idea of writing something down imprints it in your brain differently so I think that's that's wonderful yeah, it's definitely, I think you sort of go into like a, almost like a meditative state naturally while you're writing anyway. Um, and so, yeah, writing and journaling for me has been a massive help over the years. I don't do as much as I used to, but I, I used to literally sit down every day and I would write down lists of things that I was grateful for. And then I would write down lists of goals. And then I would go back the next day and I would tick off anything that I had achieved. Uh, and even if the goal was as simple as I will start a painting today and then the next day I would tick it off and I would feel like I'd achieved something and it's just really I really recommend it that's awesome yeah at the so I started doing this thing um just at a very simple level it's not imprinting it the same way but um you know as an artist you may get emails on a regular basis Hmm. Um, or even maybe it's not regular, maybe, maybe you get one or two a month that are really, uh, that's from somebody you don't know, that's, you know, a complimentary message or something that's positive or you had great news. Um, I use Gmail, so I've added a label called love and I will oh. attach that label to those so that when I'm having a tough day, I go into the love label, um, and I flip through those emails and, uh, at the very minimum, that's a really great way to have kind of an electronic gratitude journal. That's really, really nice. I love that. I think that's a great idea. And I think, yeah, you sometimes forget, especially with social media, if you're getting lots of comments and complimentary messages and stuff, it can be easy to just quickly type out, like, thank you, and then forget about it. But I try, when I'm reading comments and stuff, I try and actually be in the moment and read them and take in what they've said. 
and it just make it makes you feel great like the other day I posted on Twitter about the fact that I had come second in the People's Choice Award and was sort of like seven votes off and it was a positive thing and I was just sort of saying like god I'm so overwhelmed that so many people voted and thank you so much and loads of people were saying you know congratulations and and people you know I had some people that had never met me before saying uh sending really nice messages like oh I know that we've never met but I feel really proud of you and I was like oh god that makes me feel so amazing it's almost like having a family member or something tell you that they're proud of you and it's just come from someone that you don't know but rather than just going through twitter and just skimming through all these messages i was really reading all of them and feeling so grateful and yeah it's a great place to be in emotionally and i do think that if you're grateful on a daily basis you attract more things to be grateful for naturally mm, that's awesome well i can say as as a as a fellow artist um I'm proud of you <laughs> for oh, all the work you. you've done and uh, <laughs> for for being on this podcast and um, providing that light to so many so many artists and so many people out there that are looking to either embrace art or to um, to be able to just look at more wildlife and embrace this planet that we're on together. So I, I really appreciate everything that you've been doing. Well, thank you. And I'm proud of you as well for going for it and doing art and actually starting a podcast so that you can help other people on their journey as well amazing thank you that's so kind so i wanted to ask you one last thing um where can people find you online i think that'll be obvious but maybe we should go (laughs) well so i have a website which is um sophie green like the color fineart.com uh my instagram is sophie green fine art uh my facebook is sophie green fine art and my twitter is sophie green art um, and the reason it doesn't have fine in it is because Twitter's kind of stingy with the characters. Right. <laughs> so I was only allowed Sophie Green art. Um, I think that's all of the social medias that I've covered. So yeah, I, I post on all of them pretty much every day. So you'll be guaranteed wherever you go to uh, to see some of my art. Yeah, I would uh, I would recommend following Sophie everywhere. Uh, I'm in Instagram mm-hmm. a lot, and I just love uh, she posts so often, and they're as she suggested they're they're kind of beautifully rendered uh, photos and she shows the works in progress. And um, if I'm having a bad day flipping through my Instagram and seeing Sophie's work, we'll change that. So I wanted to thank you, Sophie, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and uh, inspiring others and and motivating us all to, to not just create more work, but be mindful about our our role in uh, moving this planet forward and, and getting it to a better place. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and for inviting me on. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute honor. Awesome. Thank you. Well, wishing you all the best and looking forward to your your new ventures. And maybe we can Mm -hmm. touch base in a year from now and see how are things going. Definitely. Yeah, it'd be good. Good to come back on. And by then, hopefully I'll be I'll be recording from Africa or somewhere. (laughs) That would be awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Sophie. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Show notes, including links to everything Sophie and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 59. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. The music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. Kevin McLeod.